Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Today, we're exploring a topic that we wish got more attention, how American Indian tribes and Native communities are faring during the pandemic. Indigenous communities are an important constituency that we don't hear enough about in our news, in our history books, and in our media. We wanted to learn more about how Indigenous communities are coping with COVID-19. My colleagues here at the Urban Institute recently released research showing that more than half of Native American workers are in jobs that put them at higher risk for COVID exposure. And according to recent CDC data, American Indian or Alaska Native people are four times more likely than whites to end up hospitalized with the virus. But we also know tribes have received funding to help weather the pandemic from the CARES Act. And we're curious about how that's working out. To learn more, we checked in with urban researcher Nancy Pindis and folks from the White Mountain Apache tribe and the Nisqually tribe to get a glimpse of how they're faring. So the first thing we should keep in mind when it comes to tribal communities, there are lots of tribes and they're spread out across a wide range of places and geographies across the U.S. Here's urban researcher Nancy Pindis. The one thing that I always start off with is to remember how diverse the tribes are. There are 564, I believe, federally recognized tribes and all over the country and varying, just so so diverse that it's hard to make generalizations. Part of this is because of geography, which shapes each tribe's local economy. The environmental circumstances and locations are one of the the things that you can't generalize about what some face in terms of land that isn't very good for for farming or agriculture, as opposed to tribes that have traditionally got much of their economy based on, say, fishing and, and hunting. Fishing, hunting, and other recreational activities typically bring a lot of tourists to the homelands of the White Mountain Apache tribe, which is about 17,000 strong in the northeastern part of Arizona. We have people from the Phoenix area come up um, to escape the heat, and they camp and they fish and they do all that. Over here, we have our trophy elk. People pay money to come here and hunt the trophy elk. That's Lukea Williams. Lukea is the housing management manager at the White Mountain Apache Housing Authority, where she's worked for 13 years. It's very beautiful over here. Um, we see all four seasons here in the state of Arizona. So we see the fall, we see the winter, we see the summer, we see the spring. Natural beauty also defines the homeland of the Nisqually tribe, which has about 800 members and is located near Olympia, Washington. Joe Cushman and Justine Capra work for the tribe's planning and economic development department. Here's Joe. The Nisqually River is one of the remaining, I think, wild river systems in the country. It starts at Mount Rainier, it runs into Puget Sound. The tribe was a fishing tribe and a river tribe, but they also were a prairie tribe. You've got Puget Sound, you've got the rivers, you've got the coastlines, you know, you've got Seattle. It's getting urbanized and there's it's hard to buy a house there anymore, but it's just an amazing place. I couldn't live anywhere else. We're going to start with Lucaea's story. She works on a range of programs for the White Mountain Apache Housing Authority, and it's challenging work. Lucaea says overall, COVID has been devastating for the tribe. So COVID here hit the White Mountain Apache tribe hard. I'm sure it hit many communities, many reservations nationwide, but 
just being such a close knit community, I, being able to me being able to go visit my mom, my aunt, and then that coming to a stop. And I think right now we're sitting at 41 deaths within the tribe, and that ranges from elders. Um, we had prominent medicine man, one of our traditional leaders had COVID. COVID took his life. We have, uh, I believe, many of our elders who lost their lives to COVID. And I think one death was just way too much, which went too many. These losses are horrifying. And Lucaya says a big part of the reason COVID has taken such a toll in her community is because of a lack of resources and an enormous shortage of housing. If everybody lived in their own home, and then we would have had a better hold on it. But then you go to a house and you have 12 people living there and they all get infected. Eight people living in a house and they all get infected. The tribe has dealt with underfunding and severe housing shortages long before the pandemic came along. (laughs) Even before the pandemic, the housing authority today, as of today, we have well over 1,500 families that are on our waiting list. We have a tribe of 17,000 tribal members and we just don't have the funding to meet all the needs. Even before COVID hit, we still had a waiting list. We had to go by. People wait three to four years to get into a house. So that housing need has always been there. And if it was up to me, I would provide everybody a house, you know, get all 1,500 tribal members that we currently have on the waiting list into a house. But unfortunately, just the lack of funding and we are grateful for the funding we do get, you know, don't, 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 don't get me wrong. The housing grid really appreciates the funding, but it, it just doesn't meet the need. It doesn't meet the need of our 17,000 tribal members. The community has lots of multi-generational homes, which means increased risk of COVID transmission to someone in a household who's at risk to become seriously ill because of their age. We've had so many calls here over and over about with grandson, granddaughter, mom, dad calling. I can't go back to grandma's house. I don't want to go back to grandma's house. I don't want to affect grandma. I don't want to affect grandpa. Please take me somewhere. Give me a house where I can stay for a couple of weeks until I'm clear because I, I can't afford to lose grandma. I can't afford to lose grandpa. And I think at that moment, it hit the tribal people. It hit the housing authority. The importance of getting into your own home, having your own privacy, So you're able to just get better, feel better without the worries of infecting grandma, worries of infecting the baby, your sister's child, infecting your mom, infecting your dad. Yesterday, we just heard that there was a family of 12 living in a house and they all got infected. And then you're thinking about the importance of housing and people just don't really know, I guess, unless you're in that situation. It's really hard to um, understand the the need for housing, um, living by yourself so you're able to get better and not worry about it. Lukea says the housing authority does offer emergency shelter for those who need it, but the shelters are completely full at this point. Because of COVID, uh, the winter seasons are coming, we do offer emergency shelter. However, all of our shelters are um, occupied. So at this time, we... We can't really assist families who want emergency shelter, want to go somewhere to quarantine. And we, due to our um, shelters, are occupied at the moment. In short, it's basically an impossible situation. 
And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when you have to turn families away because we don't have the need there. We, we, we can't meet their need. And we have families coming in with kids, with babies, with grandmas, and they're wanting a place to go because the house they live in is cold. The house they run in has no running water. And sitting here, as much as we want to help them, we our hands are tied. Lukea and her team do everything they can to help their community. If it's us going in to install windows so that cold air won't come in, the cold draft won't come in. If it's the housing authority going in to install a wood stove so they're warm. If it's fixing a water leak so they can turn back on the water. We try as much to help them make the home livable if we're unable to relocate them into emergency shelter unit or something. So we try our best here. And the only reason why I love my job is because I grew up homeless. I grew up in a house that had no running water. And now I'm sitting here and I know what that feels like. So I'm trying my best to help the people because it's not about me. You know, it's not about my boss. It's about the people of the White Mountain Apache tribe. It's about them. It's about us trying our best to help them to where they're living in a healthy home. It's no secret that the pandemic is highlighting huge disparities in our country's population, particularly among Native communities. Here's Nancy again. It's shining a light on every aspect of inequality in this country. It's just shining a bright light on the on the whole thing. It's certainly true for um, Native Americans. Here you have a situation where they're saying, wash your hands, socially distance, and you have communities where there is they don't even have access to clean running water and a shortage of housing, which is causing over overcrowded conditions. So you, you've got that going on a, a very underfunded for a very long time Indian Health Service. So you've got limited health facilities as well as aging facilities and lack of equipment. So you have all of those things and a pandemic. It's just sort of a worst case scenario in many ways. These disparities in this underfunding and lack of access has been devastating and deadly. But Lukea's team was one of the first to apply for funding through the CARES Act. And the White Mountain Apache Housing Authority has received $3 million. The housing authority with the money. With the CARES funding, we're now able to build two fourplexes. Within their reservation, we have nine communities and maybe three three major communities, which is the White River community, the McNary community, and the CBQ community. CBQ and McNary, they don't have any emergency shelter units. They don't have any relocation units. They don't have any of that. So when the CARES funding came, it was decided that we would build four apartment-style homes in the McNary area and in the CBQ area. When families from McNary or CBQ get the virus um, and they want to quarantine, we can send them to either one of the four houses, move them in there. And we're hoping that when this is all done and over with, when COVID is behind us, that we're able to um, transform these units into either emergency shelter units, rental units, just use them if anything should come up. The difficult thing is that progress in building these units has been slow due to delays in construction and supplies. Once we go into lockdown, we can't do anything, like nothing. So with our tribe still overcoming COVID and all the positive cases, the rise in positive cases, the building these units, uh, we haven't really 
been able to get to it only because we're it's either we're on lockdown, someone tested positive, then it just goes from there. And so because of COVID and the tribe being in phase three, unable to open anything, and then having the construction fail and our suppliers like so far back ordering, I mean, this COVID hit everybody. And we're kind of behind on supplies coming in. So so because of that, um, we haven't really been able to actually start construction. So what does the tribe need most to get through all of this? Basically, more support. And it's something I can stress. It's more funding. It's more funding for the Native American community. It's more funding for the Native housing program and getting our Native people into houses, into homes and infrastructure seeing families living with no running water. And then you have to have the water for hygiene to wash your hands. And then you have families out there who don't even have the running water. Their homes are dilapidated. They're falling apart. And we want to go in and help them. We want to go in and rehab. But it's just the lack of funding that the White Mount Apache Housing Authority has. We need funding. and. I believe every reservation, every tribal housing authority, I'm sure, needs more funding to meet the needs of their people. Okay, we're going to leave Arizona now and head up to the Northwest. Joe Cushman is the Planning and Economic Development Director for the Nisqually Indian Tribe in Washington State. He's worked for the tribe for 46 years, and over that time, the tribe has grown to around 800 people. He agrees that funding is key. He works on a number of programs, and housing is at the top of the list, but there's many more. The tribe does have a large housing list of folks that need housing, and we've been able to build on the reservation about 125 units, uh, but we need another 100, and that's always been a priority, and it's been moved up near the top of the list now. Education's a priority. Um, a lot of folks here are getting educated. Healthcare is a huge issue. The tribe is right now building a $20 million health clinic. A lot of health issues at the tribe, uh, a lot of chronic conditions, and it's really essential to have a good local culturally competent program that they can work with and they can go see. The tribe is a leader here in natural resources. They manage the Nisqually River and the watershed. They have hatcheries. They have uh, habitat restoration programs. They really do a lot of great stuff here. When the pandemic hit, Joe says the Nisqually tribe quickly shut down, which helped keep COVID cases at bay. The reservation was closed, you know, roadblocks, literally. Uh, The tribe responded very quickly and very effectively. I was quite impressed. We have an emergency management program, and they were prepared, and they knew what to do for... Six months, we did not have a single case on the reservation. Recently, we've had a couple, but uh, I think we got ahead of it, and I think we're still ahead of it. While it's really encouraging that the Nisqually tribe has had relatively few COVID cases so far, Joe said the pandemic has created deep economic uncertainty. It was kind of a wake-up call that you can't depend on anything. Uh, You know, economic development is consumer-based, and it's uh, demand-based. The tribe does have a gaming facility, and it literally shut down for a couple of months. Then it opened up very carefully. It's operating at partial capacity right now. The tribe's corrections facility, which is a service, but it also has a revenue component, they had 280 inmates before COVID and 
A month later, they had 30. So that was a big hit. The tribe has five convenience stores out and about in the area. They took somewhat of a hit, but not as much because people still need gas. They still need to drive around. So I was thankful that the tribe had diversified its economy somewhat and we didn't have all our eggs in one basket. Just, you know, realizing that people in the housing areas, you know, have house payments to make and they have jobs and when they can't go to work because of COVID, it affects that. And then the pressure comes back on the tribe to try to deal with that. And, you know, just being able to get to work. It was interesting how quickly we realized that everything we do is interconnected out here. The Nisqually tribe was also able to secure CARES Act funding, which they're using to build up two key areas, emergency operations and victim assistance. What we found out is we had two programs here that were really essential to our response. One was emergency operations, and they're, they're in a building that's dilapidated and basically falling down. And we said, you know, this is this is not going to work next time. We have to get them in a better facility. They're busting at the seams. So we did the planning for that. And the same with the victim assistance program. You know, when people are locked down in their house and they can't go anywhere, things start to happen. We found out that we had an increase in cases of uh, domestic violence and related things. And it became really evident that if we're going to get a handle on this thing long term, we have to have that program response there. Justine Capra works as a grant writer for the Nisqually tribe, and a good deal of her work has focused on domestic violence programming. It also became evident right in the beginning that there was a shadow pandemic, that there's a pandemic within the pandemic of victims that are isolated, that can't get out, that their perpetrator is just keeping them, you know, in an area that's at close quarters where they can't get social distancing or get the resources that they need. So we just realized just having a, an area where they can go to is just was really important. Having a centrally located domestic violence program where People that are in domestic violence situations can go and access is imperative, not only for them to access, but also to be a visible deterrent that there's people in the community that care about this issue so that it doesn't continue. We just need to have that at the forefront. But there are bright spots in these difficult times, too. Urban researcher Nancy Pendis says that in the pandemic, tribes and state and local government have all learned lessons on coordination and working together. It's brought tribes, especially in urban areas, it's brought tribes to the table with local and state local governments more. Looking ahead, if you can get everybody to stay at the table together, it would be really, really important and, and really, really helpful to, to do that and to address some of these environmental conditions. The pandemic has shined a light on the disparities that some Native American communities have faced for far too long. The infrastructure situation, I can't believe, you know, there's still these issues with running water and sewage and road conditions. And these are things that they were always a problem. But I mean, now it's sort of really become a a priority. And I hope that that continues to really receive more attention and more funding and to address some of those environmental conditions. And the healthcare system, I mean, Indian Health Service has been underfunded, and this is just something that they've really got to address in terms of the lack of equipment, rundown facilities, transportation to more intensive healthcare facilities when needed. I would hope that all of those things continue and really um, get more attention. One silver lining is the way that tribes have come together and worked to fight it. 
Here are closing thoughts from Joe, Justine, and Lucaya. It just pointed out that the tribe underneath it all has a pretty effective way of doing business. You know, they have a tribal council that answers to the general council. And then underneath tribal council, they have administrators who oversee a large number of programs. And the tribe was able to really rapidly and effectively make decisions. You know, I was also impressed that the tribe, it's almost like they're at their best when they have a crisis because they kind of come together and they can kind of quickly identify what's important and and prioritize that. I think the main thing is how well the tribe cares for their people. You know, even though I'm not a tribal member, I just feel that cohesiveness and the energy that they, you know, daily are working to try to get resources for their people in a holistic way that's healthy. You know, they have enterprises, but that money just gets poured right back into the programs that work for the benefit for the tribe. So although COVID did hit hard, the community is coming together. We're all working together to fight COVID. It's just an effort. Um, Like I said, we're a tight-knit community and we'll always be here for one another. We'll always support each other. We're just always about support from one another. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, For tribal communities, the availability of safe, affordable housing is key to stopping the spread of COVID-19, and it's imperative to help multi-generational households quarantine safely and effectively. Two, tribes need more support to keep their communities healthy. Decades of poor infrastructure and underfunded health systems have created huge disparities for some tribal nations. And three, tribes have benefited from CARES Act funding, but it's important to make it as streamlined and accessible as possible so they can put it to use quickly. So that's our show. To learn more about the White Mountain Apache tribe and the Nisqually Indian tribe, visit whitemountainapache.org and www.nisqually-nsn.gov. Big, big thank you to Lucaya Williams, Joe Cushman, and Justine Capro. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights. It was truly an honor to speak with each of you. Also, thank you to Nancy Pindis and Alex Tomorrow for their very thoughtful guidance on this episode. And finally, big thank you to producers Katie Smith and Kate Villarreal. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two kids who continue to be co-producers... Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you learned a lot from this podcast and books and lots of other things uh, about things you need to learn. <laughs> Yay!